Hello and welcome to the Respiratory Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Raed Wake, Chairman of the Respiratory Institute at Cleveland Clinic. This podcast is intended for healthcare providers and covers topics related to respiratory health and disease. My colleagues and I would be interviewing experts about timeless and timely topics in the areas of pulmonary, critical care, allergy, sleep, and infectious disease. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Respiratory Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Raed Wake, the chairman of the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, and my guest today is Dr. Jamie Stoller. Dr. Stoller is the chairman of the Education Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, and he's a nationally and internationally recognized expert in alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, which is the topic of our podcast today. Jamie, welcome. Well, thank you, Ryan. I'm delighted to be here. So let's start uh, with the basics. What is alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, Jamie? So alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, right, is a, a genetic condition. It's inherited, and it gives rise to a risk for several conditions, uh, lung disease, particularly emphysema or COPD, and liver disease. As we'll discuss, the pathophysiology is very interesting, and the pathogenesis of the liver disease is actually different than that in the lung, but it can give rise to both either in the same individual or in different individuals. There's also a predisposition to an unusual skin condition, an inflammatory skin condition called paniculitis. And lastly, a fascinating association with vasculitis, with C. vasculitis. So genetic condition predisposes to four important clinical features, as I've mentioned. Wow, it looks like it affects multiple organ systems. How common is it? You know, it's it's pretty common, actually. Um, there are population-based studies based in Sweden and in this country that suggest that the prevalence in the United States is about 1 in 3,500. A large study with one of the direct consumer genetic companies uh, in which we participated sampled 3 million users of that service and demonstrated a prevalence of about 1 in 3,800, which quite agrees with the prior population-based uh, screening studies. When one looks at the population of the United States, this gives rise to an estimate of about 100,000 Americans with severe deficiency of alpha-1, the so-called PIZZ type that I'm sure we'll be discussing. Oh, wow. So that's a lot of people, but we don't see that many in clinic on a regular basis. Where are they? Well, that's a great question. And, and one of the signature features of this, which has been the subject of, of much research and, and many efforts to enhance diagnosis, is that this is under-recognized, severely under-recognized. So that, for example, of the 100,000 Americans, we estimate that fewer than 12,000 are clinically recognized, leaving the majority of affected individuals, and of course their family members, because again, this is a genetic disease, unrecognized in our midst. Now, in fairness, some of those patients go through life unaffected, particularly if they don't smoke. But there are many patients, we see them all the time in our clinic, they're afflicted by chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or liver disease, that actually have alpha-1 as a predisposing condition, but are unrecognized as being so. So why do you think there's this delay or in diagnosis or under-recognition in general? Why do you think that is? Well, I think there are several reasons. Of course, all of the guidelines, and there are now 15 international guidelines on alpha-1 that we've reviewed, all of them are concordant in suggesting that every patient with fixed airflow obstruction on pulmonary function tests be tested once in their lifetime with in the ATS guidelines, a serum level for alpha-1 and a genotype. And yet we know that doctors are generally 
relatively refractory to guideline implementation. We see this in many conditions, um, you know, low stretch ventilation in ARDS, even though ARDSnet was published two decades ago, now more than two decades ago, we still see incomplete compliance with guideline-based practice. So that's one reason. Uh, the other is there, there is a sense of therapeutic nihilism by some folks, the idea that there is no effective therapy and therefore why burden a patient with a psychologic burden of a genetic disease. Now that's not true because there are effective therapies and importantly, we're on the doorstep of a number of, of really very, very innovative treatments that will likely come into the armamentarium in our lifetimes. Those are the major reasons. These are big, big reasons I can uh, can hi understand how there's uh, under-recognition. So what causes, like, what's the underlying pathogenesis of alpha-1 antitrypsin You how does, how does it uh, happen? Sure. Well, ultimately, alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, of which there are more than 150 genotypes, the most common uh, severe genotype is the so-called ZZ type, which is a single amino acid substitution at position 342 on a 394 amino acid glycoprotein. And in the case of the Z protein, the 342nd amino acid is a lysine instead of a glutamic acid. That strategic substitution causes a conformational change in the molecule as it's synthesized in the hepatocyte. And that conformational change allows the Z protein, unlike the normal M protein, in which all 394 amino acids are normal, the Z protein, when released from the ribosome, folds abnormally in a way that exposes one of its beta sites. And the beta loop invites an adjacent Z molecule to intercalate itself and polymerize within the hepatocyte. So that Z-type alpha-1 antitrypsin, which is the most, again, the most common deficient variant, 95% of clinical disease relates to ZZ individuals. In that case, the, the, the Z protein polymerizes in the hepatocyte. That polymerization precludes its secretion into the bloodstream, which causes a downstream deficiency in the bloodstream and therefore in the lung. So the pathogenesis is really twofold. It's primarily a hepatic inclusion disease, at least ZZ type, which causes, predisposes the, the toxic so-called gain of function, the excess protein in the liver cell predisposes to liver disease. And the lung disease is said to be a toxic loss of function. Namely, there's too little in the bloodstream, therefore too little in the lung. And we know that alpha-1, importantly, opposes neutrophil elastase, which is a proteolytic threat to the lung and which breaks down elastin and therefore alveolar walls. So the emphysema is related to too little alpha-1 in the lung and the cirrhosis is related to too much alpha-1 in the liver. Wow, what a fascinating paradox. It's uh, really two sides of the same problem. So uh, clinically, how does this manifest when patients present to us? You know, what does it look like? Most commonly with COPD, and of course, as you and all of our pulmonary colleagues know, this characteristically presents with shortness of breath. There's often a delay in even recognizing COPD, the, hence the importance of doing spirometry very early. And with the recognition of fixed airflow obstruction, post-bronchodilator fixed airflow obstruction on PFTs, that should, again, by guideline, indicate testing for alpha-1. So it presents with dyspnea. There are some patients who have bronchiectasis, and so they present with copious phlegm episodes of hemoptysis. And occasionally, this can present as liver disease preceding the lung disease, although that's a relatively less common scenario. The prevalence of liver disease depends on the series, but maybe as high as 40% in ZZ individuals. 
the prevalence of, of COPD is likely higher, particularly, again, if individuals smoke or work in dusty occupations, steel mills, firefighters, etc. Thank you for explaining that. So what happens in the natural history of the disease? Do the patients progress, stabilize? What happens with them over time? It's characteristically a progressive disease, and we know this from the results of the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute Registry, which was a study done in the 80s in which we at the Cleveland Clinic served as the coordinating center and engaged with 36 other centers around the United States and Canada, which as a group followed 1,129 individuals. And we characterized over about seven to 10 years the changes in FEV1 over these individuals and identified the fact that in ex-smokers, the rate of FEV1 decline in these individuals was 54 ml per year, recognizing that the normal age, as you well know, and our colleagues well know, the normal age-related decline in men and women is roughly 19 to 22 ml per year from Framingham and other studies. In never smokers, that number may be as high as 67 ml per year. And in current smokers, thankfully very few in the registry, only 8%, that number is 109 ml per year. So they lose lung function on average five-fold faster than normal, recognizing that there are, of course, subsets of individuals who have deficiency of alpha-1 who thankfully never experience accelerated decline. That is likely a minority of the individuals, but I have seen them in my practice, and I'm thankful when I see such individuals. Wow, that's huge, the impact of smoking. So you see the combination, the deficiency, like a two-hit almost, like the deficiency and then the smoking on top of that. Do we have any explanation for those who do not uh, get progressive disease, or that's an area of research? It's or? an area of, of somewhat un uh, uncertainty. So collaborating with colleagues in Boston, with Dr. Silverman and others, we've looked for genetic modifiers and have found in, in genome-wide screening uh, some genes that seem to be disproportionately represented in sibling pairs where there's discordant phenotypes. But truly, this is not well understood uh, what it is other than the avoidance of cigarette smoking uh, that protects some individuals and, and subjects other individuals to progressive airflow obstruction is, I would have to say, incompletely understood in 2022. Yeah, just to clarify that, so definitely smoking is a major enhancer of uh, lung, loss of lung function, but people can lose lung function even who don't smoke. Absolutely. As well. Absolutely. Because of the deficiency. Absolutely. Yeah. So it seems like, you know, it's under-recognized, uh, as you mentioned earlier. So how does a practitioner, either pulmonary or maybe a general internist, get exposed to this? How do they make the diagnosis? How do uh, they yeah, suspect yeah. it and make and diagnose it? Well, the diagnosis is thankfully easy, uh, and, and it's a simple blood test. And one would check for a serum level of alpha-1 antitrypsin in the bloodstream. Normal ranges in most labs are about 90 to 220 milligrams per deciliter. This is also sometimes expressed in micromolar, where the normal range is 20 to 53 micromolar. And ideally, in my view, one would also send a genotype, which is generally in labs done with, uh, with PCR probes, for the most frequently represented abnormal alleles, which in our lab at the Cleveland Clinic is the Z allele, the S allele, the I allele, and the F allele, as in Frank. A lot of alleles to remember, you know, but yes. they're all tested for routinely. So the, the practitioner does not have to order these alleles, just you send for the genetic test and that's done routinely. Exactly, it is important to understand what the laboratory to which you send your specimens does because there is some variation in laboratory practices with regard to which alleles are tested for, and in some cases, how the testing is done. Some 
Laboratories will do isoelectric focusing, looking for a band pattern as the protein migrates on a protein gradient uh, from pH 4 to 5 and looks for the banding patterns, which is a very subtle art. And again, many laboratories will do the PCR probes. And finally, when there is a discordancy, uh, a discordance rather, between the clinical phenotype and the serum level, let's say the patient has a low level of alpha-1 antitrypsin, but no abnormal allele found, then there's a role for either Sanger or next-generation sequencing, whole exome sequencing, to look for unknown variants, currently unknown variants. Yeah. So the key is to find a way that the clinical picture and the testing are concordant Absolutely. one way or another. You, so Absolutely. that you know what you're doing. That's that's a great a great advice. Then do, who do we test? Like do we test everyone with COPD or are there any salient clinical features that will suggest that we test or what are your suggestions for the pulmonary practitioner out there? Well, in the end of the day, every patient with COPD should be tested. Now, when we read textbooks, we're, we're used to thinking alpha-1 presenting in a young, never-smoker with lower lobe emphysema as the classic clinical picture. And while those are characteristic features, I will tell you that if you depend on those clinical criteria to hone your testing, you will miss most of the patients. We know, as part of this under-recognition, for example, that patients we studied this years ago, and it regrettably remains true today, that, that these patients will spend about six to eight years from the initial onset of dyspnea to initial recognition of alpha-1, and will, in some series, see as many as 12 physicians before the diagnosis is initially made. I see this in my practice wow. quite commonly. And so uh, there really is an impetus to have a low threshold to test. And again, guidelines suggest that every patient, every patient, with fixed airflow obstruction on PFTs should undergo testing once in their lifetime. I mean, from the testing standpoint, it's a simple blood test, so that makes it uh, easy. It's not like a complicated test. It's not a biopsy or anything, so I think that should make it easy to do. But what about the expense? Is this covered by uh, most insurances? It is, uh, and in addition to that, many groups, obviously the the companies that produce drug for Alpha-1, as well as the Alpha-1 Foundation, offer free testing. So the Alpha-1 Foundation offers what they call their alpha-coded testing trial, where one would go online, sign up, receive a dried blood spot test kit and a lancet, prick the finger, put a little bit of spot, a blood spot on a card, send it in. This is analyzed by Dr. Mark Brantley's lab at the University of Florida, which is subsidized by the foundation. And the patient would receive confidentially at home and at no cost their serum level and genotype. So... Insurance covers most testing, but if one is disinclined to do that, one can avail oneself of these alternative testing strategies, and there really is no financial disincentive in that context. Wow, that's a great service. And uh, if I understood correctly from you, uh, it doesn't even need a physician order. The patient can just request that and do it on their own. The patient can go online, sign up. It's sort of like a home pregnancy test in a way. Yeah, wow, that's impressive. I mean, for an unrecognized disease, that's almost the only way to make sure that we recognize more and more of these patients. And uh, which makes, takes me to my next question is, why is it important to recognize this? You know, and we want to diagnose it. Are there effective therapies for this and how do they work? First of all, we recognize that delayed recognition is associated with worsened clinical outcome. A paper actually published by our colleague Vic Tejwani and, and I showed that Diagnostic delay interval was directly associated with worsened CAT score, worsened St. George's respiratory questionnaire, and a trend towards a lower FEV1. So diagnostic delay is, is ill-advised uh, in a progressive disease. 
We also know, as you suggest, that there are interventions, even short of specific therapy. For example, smoking cessation. In the studies done at birth in Sweden and in this country, individuals tested at birth, identified at birth, had a lower likelihood to ever initiate cigarette smoking in their teens than did their age and gender matched normal colleagues. So smoking prevention, very important. Occupational choice, it would be ill-advised to be a coal miner exposed to dusty environmental uh, exposures with alpha-1. So there are those interventions. Of course, all the usual interventions in chronic obstructive pulmonary disease for patients who are afflicted apply, with the possible exception of lung volume reduction surgery, where we know from a subset analysis of the NET trial in which we at the Cleveland Clinic, as you know, participated, we identified that individuals with alpha-1 undergoing lung volume reduction surgery tend to experience lower increments in their FEV1 of shorter duration than their normal matched colleagues. So with that possible exception, all of the other interventions, bronchodilators, supplemental oxygen, vaccinations, pulmonary rehab, certainly apply. Lung transplant uh, in extreme cases is clearly available, and about 5% of lung transplants performed worldwide are performed for individuals with severe COPD due to alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency. Beyond that, there are specific therapies, and the specific therapy is called augmentation therapy, which in the current state is the intravenous infusion of pooled human plasma-derived alpha-1 antitrypsin. So donors give blood, that blood is highly extracted, purified, and the alpha-1 component extracted, prepared in either a lyophilized preparation or several liquid preparations, and then is given intravenously to these individuals once weekly at a dose of 60 milligrams per kilogram, which is the FDA-approved dose and dosing interval for life. We do know from now three randomized clinical trials, the weight of evidence suggests that such therapy is effective in slowing the rate of COPD progression as assessed by CT densitometry in the most recent so-called rapid trial. But the weight of evidence is clear even though no one individual randomized trial, which is always a challenge in a rare disease, assembling a large enough cohort to have adequate power, et cetera, although no one randomized trial, in my view, is definitive, the weight of evidence is quite clear that augmentation therapy is effective, and I certainly prescribe it in my practice. It's always great to have effective therapies for these chronic illnesses. It's, uh, it's not uh, it's unusual because other types of COPD, they don't have specific therapies. So it's maybe a more incentive to make the diagnosis because you have a specific treatment as opposed to just the, the usual oxygen inhalers, etc. Are there any implica family implications for making the diagnosis? Yes. Genetic disease, so what are the family implications? Yeah, so guidelines similarly suggest, since this is, again, an autosomal codominant condition, the gene lives on the 14th chromosome, so it's, it's not sex-linked. And because it's an autosomal codominant condition, that means guidelines suggest that every first-degree relative, parents, if they're living, all siblings and all children should be tested. So, for example, in one scenario, we know that heterozygotes, one normal gene M and one abnormal gene Z, MZ individuals comprise 3% of Americans. So in the case of an MZ father and an MZ mother, there's a one in four chance of that parentage that a child as an independent risk for each child will be ZZ or homozygous. A two in four chance that the child will be MZ and a one in four chance of being MM normal. We also recognize that MZ individuals, if they smoke, are at risk for developing emphysema, probably 
probably more pronouncedly than if they were MM and smokers. Some recent data from COPD gene and other studies support that idea. And so this is a family affair. And, and, and patients that I see who are afflicted become spokespersons to their families and, and, and promote this. Uh, we also know from studies done with, again, these gene testing companies recently published in CHEST that uh, the diagnosis made has implications for reporting to family members and to their physicians so that rendering a diagnosis is impactful for the patient, him or herself, and for his or her relatives. Yeah, it's important to know because it, the implications is not just for the individual, but all the entire family absolutely affected. So are there any novel uh, treatments coming down the pike for this disease, or is it just augmentation therapy? No. Uh, so we've had augmentation therapy since the late 80s, the first such drug. There are four approved in the, in the United States today. But thankfully, there are other approaches that are quite novel, and they run the gamut from corrector molecules, much like our approach to cystic fibrosis, to... Uh, molecules that amplify the, the impact of the alpha-1, sort of like um, antibodies with, with two-headed alpha-1 molecules that have longer half-lives, to gene editing approaches, to gene therapy trials, to there's RNA editing, DNA editing. There are a number of very novel approaches. CRISPR is being looked at in, in murine models currently. And so that I, I expect that over the course of the next decade, of course, hard to absolutely predict, but my expectation is that over the course of the next decade, some of these novel therapies will, will come to fruition and gain approval uh, in pivotal trials and so on. Wow, that's exciting. You know, uh, new things, always new things coming down the pike. So there is hope, I guess, for uh, absolutely. physicians. Another reason to make the diagnosis. Yeah. So that even though augmentation therapy may be an unsatisfactory current approach, there are prospects in the near future, I predict, that will be available for therapy. Thank you. This has been really very informative, Dr. Stoller. Any, um, any closing remarks or anything you would like to close with? Well, I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you about this. This has, of course, been an area of major personal focus and focus for us at the Cleveland Clinic uh, for a long time. I would emphasize perhaps three takeaway points. One, this is common and under-recognized. Uh, two, there are specific therapies which have impact for the patient. Uh, and three, this is a family affair. Uh, because of its genetic nature. You're treating the, the patient in front of you in your office and his or her family at the same time. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time today. And thank you to our audience for listening. Again, this is your host, Ryan Dwake, the chairman of the Respiratory Institute at the Cleveland Clinic. And my guest today was Dr. Jamie Stoller, who is the chairman of the Education Institute at the Cleveland Clinic, and also a nationally and internationally known expert in alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, which was the topic of this podcast. Thank you and have a great day. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Respiratory Exchange. For more stories and information from Cleveland Clinic Respiratory Institute, you can follow us on Twitter at Clee Clinic Lungs or follow me at Triad Dwake MD. Thank you.